0: Theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know
1: that being in community with one another on this journey will help us build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world.
0: We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of en conjunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin.
1: Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay and we are your hosts for the activist theology podcast it's time for us to get our hands dirty we're right. ready dirty.
0: are you I show up so early. they show me no
1: mercy so i just keep working Maybe god could save me hey pastor hey dr robin how's it's it going? going i'm good how are you i'm good it is a rainy 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 day in chattanooga like
0: it's very rainy in nashville too coming in
1: buckets it's ridiculous
0: in fact my girlfriend and i went to look for apartments today in the rain and the more the longer we were out the more rain we encountered yeah it's crazy and the less impressed we were with apartments (laughs) so i don't know if there's a correlation there but you never know there could be there may not be you know
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, so we woke up to some snow in Chattanooga on Saturday morning, which oh, yeah. is such a pleasant surprise because we really don't get snow to speak of. We get ice and we get, um, every once in a while, there'll be some flurries, but we really got like a, an inch or so of snow. Oh. Um, the, it was just gorgeous. It was really thick snow, so it was hanging on all the branches and looked oh, like yeah. wonderland outside. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My dog, who has never seen snow before. Like I opened the door for her to go out to the bathroom, and she was running to the door, and she like did one of those like like yeah. with her feet like stopped really suddenly. Like she was like, "What in like, the actual wow, hell? What what is that?" And I'm not going out in that, right? And then once she got out in it, she loved it. She had a really good time playing around and frolicking. But it was funny. We she, love Ruthie. She we love Ruthie. She's she's the best.
0: So, so I. Was, I I I well, I wanted to I just want to tell you that I feel angry about something. Yeah. Um I my, ain't my nobody um, ain't nobody need to get you angry. Right. So in the thing that I hate the most is incompetency. There. As a 5 on the on on as a 5 on the Enneagram, I like competency there. So Couple days ago, I was on the road. I was in Syracuse. It was very cold in Syracuse, like 17 degrees with three feet of snow, and I I realized that in in our in our current place, we um, the Wi-Fi doesn't extend as as it needs to be, or it needs to. And we live in a very small place, so I got on to chat with Apple asking. What is compatible with my airport extreme that will extend the, the signal? Because I notice, and you've been here before, like my router is in the, in the bedroom and very close by the door. But when you get to the kitchen table, the signal drops significantly. Right. And because I work a lot there at the table, I need a, a, a strong signal. So. I contacted Apple support and I said, what's compatible? And they were like, this is what's compatible. It will only cost you $100. Well, so I get it today and it's not compatible. It's only compatible with the Linksys system. Perfect. And what, and what bothers me about this is that Apple prides themselves on being helpful and having all the information that you need. And a store specialist will like, Make sure that you have the thing, the product, right? And I just feel like we live in a culture where things are so accessible, right? I was doing this from my phone via chat, but at the end of the day, it was the wrong product.
1: Yeah, super frustrating.
0: And I feel angry about that because I feel like we have created systems and cultures where, um, information is only given to a few and whatever information is given to the majority is actually is actually the wrong information. So in this case, I got the wrong information and I'm going to have to make a trip to the Apple store and like sort it out and make a return. But my point about this is I think this shows up in culture a lot where the few, the the dominant culture has access to what they need has the information that they need and it's impenetrable. We cannot get that information.
1: Yeah, I think, one, you're right to be angry and irritated. There's There are few things worse than feeling as if you've done your due diligence to purchase the right product or to investigate the right thing for your need at that moment. And then the information that you've been given is completely incorrect. Right. Um, Secondly, you know, because we have become such a distant society, a society that prides itself on the ability to do things remotely and Mm -hmm. to be, um, you know, to work separately from one another and yet still quote unquote communicate. Right. um, We've, we've, we've like, Given ourselves a pass, or we think we've given ourselves a pass to just not be, you know, in 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 true authentic communication with one another, or hold one another accountable when a piece of information that we give someone else isn't isn't correct.
0: Well, and you know, I may be harping. I mean, I may be harping on something that is just about convenience, and which may be about privilege, but. You know, I don't have all the money in the world to be spending on stuff. And so I asked the person, like, what is the most budget-friendly thing? And so now I'm going to have to go through the system of returning it, which is time for me. And I don't have a lot of free time. Right. I
1: mean, and, and that's the thing, right? The problem is that regardless of kind of what station of privilege we find ourselves in, the things that folks like you and I have the least amount of, is time and money. Right. Now, I mean, a lot of folks can say that and, and I, and I agree that most of us are, are thin on time in the way that we value or we think we have prioritized time as being something that, you know, is something that we should be able to extend and expand at will. Right. But, but when, I mean, when you're people like us who are really engaged in work that doesn't, doesn't bring in the kind of money that 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 others in in the world make like the last thing you want to do is then expend time, right? Which is is what is needed in order for us right. to continue to facilitate right. our ability to live. It, right. Yeah, it's a total cyclical you know, shit show. And I yeah, I'm well, I just, sorry I I feel, you're having
0: that. I feel really angry and frustrated. Like my blood is boiling, and like the thing that I love is when I engage with competent people. And I feel like I have engaged with incompetency to the point that it's going to cost me time and money to make this right. And I feel very frustrated. Yeah, I don't blame you.
1: Nobody has time for that. Nobody nobody has time for for that. that. And it just, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that you're going through that.
0: Thank you. But I want to hear how your weekend was. and I...
1: I, so I have shared this with you, um, separately. I had a real trauma inducing moment, um, late last week that has really, that still has me shook in a way that I'm trying to navigate. You know, I think that I especially, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. And so the last thing I want to do is feel my feelings. Right, acknowledge that I have feelings, acknowledge that I'm vulnerable or that I'm, um, you know, in a space where I need to care for myself. But this, this situation really, um, really highlighted that for me in a way that, uh, both frustrated me and forced me to kind of look real deeply at, at, at where I was in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I was heading home from an airport, um, late last week and it was late at night and I, it was raining really, really badly. I mean, the story of this entire podcast is that it's been raining for, you know,
0: 40 years.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But I was, uh, I was driving late at night, which meant the roads weren't really, um, there weren't a lot of truck, you know, trucks or cars on the road. And an SUV passed me and as this SUV was passing me, it went off the side of the road into the median, overcorrected, uh, came right back in front of me, um, at a, at a 45 degree angle to the point where if I had just slowed down, if I hadn't slowed down to the point that I did, I, I, I would have been clipped by this vehicle coming back into my lane. And it then proceeded to go off the right-hand shoulder of the road, um, roll a few times. Um, Fine, and, and you're and, watching. i watching it all happen within. I mean, within feet of me, right? Right. Um, and we're the only two kind of on the side of the road at that point in time wow. in the pitch black when it's raining torrentially. And it slid for a, a ways, and then kind of found itself up against a, a tree and fence line maybe 30 feet off the road. Mm. And so I, I mean, I was, I was shaken up, but I, but I stopped instantly called nine one one before I even got out of the car, let them know that I had just, you know, seen an accident and um, where we were and and to please send folks and um, agreed to the nine one one operator that if I came upon the vehicle, once I got up there, if I found that someone was really hurt, that I would let them know, um, and that they would send the right, you know, the right folks to come in and, and take care of the situation. So upon reaching the vehicle, I find a, a gentleman who is um, trying to get out. He was he appeared very much in shock, but unharmed. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically speaking, he had, you know, full function of all of his. You know, extremities and was able to walk and, and kind of pry the window down to get out. Mm. And as I, as I welcomed him into my vehicle to get out of the rain, as we waited for the police to come, he, uh, started uh, begging me to take him home, begging me to drive him to his house to, um, leave the scene. Drive him home, take him home. I mean, if he said it once, he said it 30 times. Please take mm-hmm. me home. Please take me home. I, like, I need to go home. It's really important. I can't stay here. And it, and at first I thought it was just because he was in shock and he was, you know, right. anxious. And he then said to me, you know, I, I can't stay here. Um, if the cops come, I'm going to go to jail. And I asked him if he had been drinking and he affirmed that he had and that, you know, that he had a wife and kids and he couldn't couldn't, you know, be responsible for this accident. It was just something that he couldn't handle and he couldn't have happen, and I needed to take him home. Right. And his demands began to escalate and... He and he's in your car. He's in my car. And you don't um, know this man. I don't know him at all. Um, Yeah, I don't know him at all. And I think had the story stopped there or kind of paused there... I would have left the situation feeling overwhelmed and anxious, but I wouldn't have, like, um, I wouldn't have had this visceral trauma reaction that I ended up having. Because after mm-hmm. he told me that he was, um, that he needed to go home and that he'd been drinking, he then threw into the mix that we needed to find his wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I paused for a second and I said, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean find your wife? And he looked at me and he said, oh, she was the one driving. She was the one driving and I was asleep. And when we wrecked, I woke up and um, I don't know where she is. And I instantly have this visceral, oh, oh, dear God. Holy shit. Like, what do you mean? Like, there's a woman there was no one else in the vehicle you yeah. mean to tell me that there's someone out here in the pitch black in the ditch or along the side of the road that is injured and we've been sitting in my car for four or five minutes mm. with you begging to take me to take you home and, and and there's someone out here that could possibly be really injured? Yeah so so out of the car I go um, turning the car off taking my keys with me asking him to leave the car with me too. And I am in the dark, in the pouring rain, yelling for this woman, uh, shining my flashlight, trying to see if I can find her, trying to locate her. Um, I'm, and I'm panicked that there is someone that is harmed and hurt somewhere. Well, through a, a, a few more minutes pass, um, he, uh, begs me a few more times to take him home. I say, I can't do that. I say, you know, we really need to find where your wife is. And he was like, oh, like, I think she ran off. I think she ran off when we wrecked because she knew she had been drinking and I don't mm. think she's out here. And so at this point, I'm vacillating between, okay, is he full of shit? Is he needing right. me a line or is there someone really injured out here? Right. And, um, Long and short, he proceeded to take off down the interstate on foot. Um, in the rain, in the dark. In, in the pouring down rain, in the dark, uh, crossed over traffic, almost was hit by an 18-wheeler as he crossed oh, across the interstate. And so I, you know, I, I called the police back and let them know what was going on, that there was someone, you know, that the person that had caused the wreck was on foot, that. He had let me know that there was potentially someone else in the car, that I couldn't locate that person. Um and I ended up being out at this accident site for many hours. Um yeah. the cops were on the hunt for him. They're kind of on and off that exit ramp trying to find him. But I I came home kind of not really knowing um kind of what this trauma response was that I was having.
0: Yeah.
1: I was overwhelmed by the fact that I was almost in a horrible accident right? that could have, that had the potential to kill me. I mean, I was in my little, you know, fuel efficient car that, um, you know, would have been smashed to bits. Um, I, I'm then overwhelmed by the fact that I've watched this accident happen and the trauma that came with just watching someone else go through this horrific experience. I, I'm then Equally overwhelmed by the fact that there was this aggressive man in my vehicle who I thought um, would have acted with an element of uh, gratitude and mm-hmm. humility and, yeah. um, you know, f- for the safety that I-, I was providing him and the way in which I was helping him. And I mean, Shame on me to assume those things out of him. And yet I also shouldn't have felt as if my life was in danger Mm -hmm. by assisting someone on the side of the road. Mm. Um, You know, and then and then I'm broken up over the fact that I don't know where this woman is. Right. I, I, I don't know if she exists, but if she does exist. I don't know where she is. I'm Mm -hmm. mortified that she might be underneath the vehicle, that she's been thrown from the vehicle, that she's somewhere in the dark, in the rain, hurting and, um, possibly dying. And I, and I came home after this multi-hour ordeal and really just didn't know how to unpack this. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I would have normally gone into like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. Like, everything's fine. I don't like, yeah. yes, that was shitty. What happened? But I'm okay. And instead, I let myself, like, sit with it. I let myself sit with the nuance of every emotion that I was feeling. Yeah. And it's, it's a new thing for me. <laughs> uh, it's an uncomfortable thing for me. But it's also, it also really informed. Um my weekend and Mm -hmm. like how I went about, you know, engaging in my personal interactions with my friends and Mm -hmm. the care I felt towards them. And I don't know, it just, it really, it shook me and it, and it asked me to, um, it asked something of me that I'm not used to giving myself.
0: Mm -hmm. Isn't it interesting how, um, you know, because when we spoke and you told me the story, you talked about, um, the privilege you live with where you don't have to ask these questions of safety and, and at the same time, the vulnerability it took for you to stop and care for someone that you don't know exists and how that that mixture of living with privilege and also making yourself vulnerable is is a recipe that we all need to figure out right and in how to live better lives and live better in relationship with one another
1: right i think that yes to all of that uh, even as I was sitting out there and thinking um, about the the ways I was going to be able to kind of be present in, in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, I had to engage with, you know, police, which um, you know, isn't always something that, you know, that doesn't sound our, fun to me. You no, know, you know, a lot of us in the movement have a hard time with navigating that that space you know and yet these cop these you know white male cops were uh super deferential to me and very grateful and you know couldn't thank me enough for the way in which I you know helped and provided information and um you know in 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 some ways sold this guy out uh you know told them everything I felt like I knew about what had happened yeah um but i I think that I yeah, I, I think it's a real hard thing oftentimes to reconcile your privilege in situations like that with the fact that vulnerability has to be a factor in the way mm-hmm. you go about this work. Yeah. And sometimes vulnerability causes you to have to check yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it also causes you to have to figure out like what, what Cards, am I willing to play in this moment? You know, where, how am I willing to 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 either go deeper or to pull back from whatever situation I find myself in? And I, I mean, this is this is in no way a an exercise in, um, you know, like how how to do better. All it did for me was it highlighted some of the real. Significant challenges that I think people run up against when their privilege hits up against something that, that, that causes them to have to look at themselves or their lives
0: differently. Yeah. So that's the thing that we're going to focus on today on this question of vulnerability and how do we be, how do we be the people that we're called to be? And I'm very excited that. Um, science Mike Mike McCarg is going to join us in a little bit. So excited! Who you know, this is a person who has really built a his platform around the engagement of science, but now is turning to more um, his own story and living with autism, which he came out about. And so I'm super stoked that we're going to have him on.
1: Yeah, me too. I I have been a um I'm not I'm not ashamed to say a fan of Mike for for a while. I I've loved um I've loved almost all of the work he's ever done. Um I think I only don't love the stuff that I haven't seen or read or heard. <laughs> right. Um I I respect him so deeply. And and I res- and I respect the vulnerability with which he comes at this work.
0: So why don't we welcome Science Mike to the podcast?
1: One of the things we do want to remind everyone and just kind of affirm for those of you that are listening, um, as Robin and I engage with voices other than ours, we know that it's important to recognize the privilege that we bring to this work. And we also acknowledge that sometimes we will be inviting into this space persons of equal privilege, specifically cis white men. And when we do this, we want to acknowledge that this type of invitation might seem problematic to some of you. We also want you to know that we are cognizant of this. We're intentional about these invitations. And we do so only when the space that these persons represent hold a really necessary conversation for all of us. Um, We intend to ask these guests how they're divesting of their privilege and their patriarchy and misogyny within their organizations. Um, And we just ask that you be in continued conversation with us as we navigate this space. Um, Just know that we see you and we love you and we honor you in all of our own individual complexities um, and everything that we bring to this work um, as individuals. Without further ado, Mike, it is really great to have you with us.
2: Oh gosh, I have been looking forward to this for so long. Thank you for letting me join with you today.
0: You have such a great calming voice. I love it.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that, uh, I don't, I don't know where it came from, but I I do feel it is, is a, a gift in the truest sense of the word.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so we're really happy for you to be here. I really enjoyed being on your podcast last fall before my book came out. Um, I know that you have a book coming out, um, and I'm wondering if you would give us a little bit of what that book is about.
2: It's called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, and fundamentally— <laughs> true well, statement for all of us. <laughs> yeah, it is, and it's a book about why our own thoughts and feelings— sometimes seem confusing to us, which is kind of strange if you think about it. Like, how do we yeah. get surprised by our own feelings and behaviors? Yeah. And in the process of unpacking that, we look at trauma, we look at emotional repression and emotional intelligence, and then we look at the ways that the way we're trained to everybody at every intersection of identity is in some way trained to mistrust or be afraid of some part of their emotional experience, the ways that, interacts with uh, Mm. and becomes a backseat driver in our work towards universal human equality and equity. Mm. When our feelings are unprocessed, they can jump up and, and basically trigger us at the moments we most need to be present for a difficult conversation. We get lost in a wave of anger or guilt or shame or worry or anxiety and therefore aren't able to fully participate. In the work we should be doing to destroy the systemic barriers to resources and access that exists in our society. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that.
1: So as a seven on the Enneagram, I'm internally shrinking. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm like, I'm like, I don't want to talk about emotion and triggering and all of the things that come with that. Um, but I'm going to do my best to remain present today and not allow mm. this like radical seven. Uh, let's all be happy and do fun things. Piece of me, uh, overtakes the Anna, conversation.
0: <laughs> Anna, Anna likes to vomit rainbows. That's, that's the kind of <laughs> seven she is.
1: Right.
2: Well, I'm only, a nine. So only rainbows. Yes. Rainbows are the best.
0: Only rainbows never rain. <laughs> right. So Mike – um, it, you know, I, I became familiar with your work um, when I, I mean, I'd heard about you for a long time, but because I was in a PhD program, I wasn't reading anything outside what I was required to read. And so when I was living in the East Bay several years ago when I was on faculty in Berkeley, this was before the 2016 election and I moved home to the South, I discovered your book, um, Finding God in the Waves. Is that right? Yeah, that's the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is fascinating. And, and I've really, I've really, um, appreciated your work around science and faith. Um, and so I feel curious about this new book. Is this new book a, a sort of, um, a left hand turn or you got to a fork in the road and you're like, which way do I go? Or, what brought you to write this book, which seems very, very personal and which seems not the thing that us writers do, right? Very personal things.
2: Mm. I actually think it's the most logical, inevitable next step for my work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first book which is really about faith transition and deconstruction and doubt. Yeah. Uh, when I wrote that book, I had human suffering was the, the the impetus behind my work. And that was just a form of suffering I felt through my experience and through careful research I was equipped to address. Uh, and then when I saw the response to that work, which was overwhelming, frankly. That, that, that yeah. took, sold a lot of copies and and kind of changed my life and turned me into a professional media person. I couldn't help but notice something as I went and started selling tickets to events and touring around not just the country but around the world. That when I was talking about deconstruction and faith transitions, and we were doing it in a room together, uh, 95% of the people in the audience were white, 95%. Mm. And that was really surprising and shocking to me, um, because I understood that although uh, various churches of color don't have the same uh, mass exodus that the white churches do, uh, there are... Theological reformations in progress in those communities as well. And I couldn't understand at first why it seemed that I was only reaching out to white people. Right. Um, and that led to a period of grief for me. I was a part of something called the Liturgist Podcast, and we released yeah. an episode about um, LGBTQ theology and the church. And we only included white vo- voices on that program. And when we released it, immediately there was so much pushback from uh queer people of color that we had done this work and not included anyone of color in the process yeah Mm. and uh at first i felt defensive and then i felt ashamed Mm. um and i i felt like shutting down and giving up that like my best work wasn't good enough Mm. and then i realized wait a second they're literally right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm having this emotional reaction, and all, I actually believe all feelings are real and valid, Yeah. Uh, but my emotional reaction is getting in the way of me receiving a very genuine and important critique about my work. Mm. And so I entered into a therapeutic process privately to try to get to a point where I could emotionally fully participate in these conversations while also working to restructure uh, the liturgist, which I was a part of, to yeah. be structurally egalitarian. Mm. And um, that process made me realize that deconstruction, which I already understood was primarily neurological and emotional in origin, isn't the only issue that's like that. Almost every issue that we face in society has its roots in emotional repression, and the inability of people to have access to their feelings in a way that blocks empathy, uh, and makes people center themselves with defensive psychological reactions. And so my, my, my goal in my work is not, not to like leave the faith conversation, but to understand that by moving below the, the kind of cognitive level we tend to engage on these issues, yeah. the feelings underneath, we might actually be able to create coalitions that so far have been difficult to create. Mm. And that is why the work you kind of see it shifting as it is.
0: Yeah. Well, you as a white man, even shifting into this work is revolutionary. From my standpoint, Mm. we don't see a lot of white men addressing these sorts of things from the place of affect or emotion. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about why, why affect, why emotion? What was it pain that drew you, that drove you to that place? I'm just, I just feel curious about what about your own process that brings you to the place of dealing with affect, which is something that's very popular in the
2: academy right now. Well, first, I have to, uh, I have to share grief. Mm. There's very few phrases that, um, open my heart and provoke pain as much as when I hear people say that, um, truthfully and honestly, that you don't hear or experience a lot of white men talking about affect or something that happens to be very often at events now. Yeah. Um, you know, my my audience is majority women. A lot more uh, people of color have started coming to my events, and afterwards they come up and they say, "I've never heard a white man talk like you," and I don't experience any encouragement from that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is a deep grief for me, yeah. and I wish I could say like I had some awakening or there was some, um, there was some personal moment. There is not. It is very simple. Uh, all the people who critiqued that episode of the liturgist podcast, I just followed them on Twitter and started listening to everything they said. Mm. And I started reading every book that they recommended and I didn't like engage. I knew that my process would be uh, burdening to them uh, that I had a, I had a period where I had to just be quiet and research and learn. And so I just started, I started changing my bookshelf. I, I, I uh, Broderick Greer used to be on Twitter and he challenged on Twitter one day to look at your bookshelf and see how many white men were there. And yeah. I was sure that when I looked at my bookshelf, I would have this remarkably inclusive library. And I did not at mm. all, not in any topic or any subject. And so I shifted my personal media consumption habits. I started reading not just nonfiction, but fiction books written by people of color, especially by women of color. And I started... Mm-hmm. Um, Entering in behind the scenes privately, uh, mentoring relationships with women of color who were willing to guide and teach me um, and uh, and just tried to be a good student and a good listener and a good learner, because I understood from my experience in the most sincere and honest effort to try to move towards justice by raising the issue of LGBTQ rights in Christian theology, that my blind spots had done tremendous harm. Mm. And it meant that I knew I would never, ever, ever, if I had a million years, figure out my blind spots alone. And that meant entering into a period of intentional research, an intentional period of processing, and then accepting the mentorship of people from marginalized intersections of identity as being able to offer me perspectives I could never find on my own. And what I decided to do very quickly was whenever someone told me about their experience, I just trust it. I don't mm-hmm. question it. I don't try to uh, play devil's advocate. I just trust that their experience is real. And then I allow um, my increasing access to my own feelings to allow me to be present and, 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 encounter in a genuine way the suffering that they express because when I connect with that suffering, I can no longer tolerate a world that perpetuates it. Mm. I love um, that.
1: I, I'd love to ask, I'd love to have you give a little bit more perspective on the ways in which you entered into relationships with people, primarily women of color to, to help, help Navigate you or answer questions you may have had about the process you were going through. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, specifically those of us that, you know, find ourselves, um, in this work and as, um, people who are white and in, in many instances, you know, come, coming from kind of the upper echelon of any level of privilege that could possibly exist. We, we ask too much of those who have been engaged in, in the work and the fight and the struggle we, we want, mm-hmm. we want, uh we want to either find validation or permission from those to move deeply into a space of, of trying to figure it out. How, how were you able to establish those kinds of relationships without uh, either stepping on toes or, Without um, feeling as if, or, or giving giving others a sense that you were asking them to help you do the work for you, versus yeah. doing doing the work yourself and then asking those to just be in the in the walk with you to to help you as you as you stumble.
2: Oh gosh, I I'm going to answer honestly, and I don't know that the answer is going to be helpful or applicable to a lot of people. So I just want to put that up front. Um, you know, I uh, I'm autistic, and I am um, I have a trauma background, and so I tend to view any interaction with another person as being uh, a potential burden on them. So I tend to have a very withdrawn uh, traits in my personality. So I love talking with people. I love being with people. I'm very present in conversation. I'm also very afraid to reach out to people because I'm sure that if I do, they're gonna be like, "Oh my gosh." Why is this asshole trying to talk to me? Mm-hmm. And that's just a conviction I know that's a backseat driver trauma thing that I'm working on. It's very much there. So as is typical for me, when I became there was a aware there was a problem, the first thing I know is there's already a way to get lots of information in a way that supports people, and that's by books. So so women of color have already done intense scholarship, intense work in advocacy. They wrote it all down and it's yeah. all there so I can learn and I can support them and I can become a, a factor of change in the public publishing industry by just setting aside a significant slice of my income to buy and read these books. Yeah, and that's, that's great. how I started. Um, and as I did that over a period of a couple of years, the way I started to speak publicly on stage, on the podcast and in social media started to what? It started to move and change. Um, and I I viewed it as my responsibility to do the work myself, understanding the resources already existed. Again, I was following at this point lots and lots of uh, people of color on social media, trying to listen, trying to apply, quickly learning. One of the first surprises for an, a newly justice-informed white person oh, wow, there's even different opinions in these communities, and how do I mm-hmm. navigate that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and as that happened, um, friends, many of whom are also public figures, started reaching out to me and saying, it looks to me like you are doing some important work in your life. It looks to me like you're doing the research that I'm hoping people will do I would like to enter into a relationship with you of taking this farther. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, and then I would say, gosh, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take any of your time. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my friends who I don't think would mind me name dropping her because I did it in the book, <laughs> Mickey Scott Bay Jones said, you are a great learner and I love that you're learning from women of color but why don't you try being friends with us as well? Like Mm. real friendship. Um, and I became pretty aware of the ways that like, even my approach to relationships is white. It's like, um, I don't know. There's a, there's an odd formality to it. And, um, and that what provoked that, by the way, is I went in the hospital and I did it. I didn't tell Mickey I was there and she was, she was pretty upset by that. um, And, and so I have started, um, when those opportunities present themselves, uh, accepting and participating while also being conscientious that this is, um, a real kindness someone is doing Mm -hmm. and that the primary onus is still on me to do my work and then to engage with them at whatever level they are comfortable with and have the time and energy for at that particular moment in their life.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that some people who might be listening might have had the question that I had, which was, wow, all these women of color doing this emotional labor helping Mike McCarg figure out his shit, but there's no real relationship there. Mm -hmm. And so I think I do agree with Mickey around how, how do you, how do you really be in relationship with difference without Without requiring whatever is different to, to, to do all the labor. And so I'm glad that you are looking at deepening the relationship and practicing that in a way that what we would call here, um, in our work is bridging across lines of radical difference. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really, I'm really glad to hear that, that you're doing that. And I feel like, that's something that we've been able to accomplish. Um, we come from very different standpoints in the world and in the work, um, but we have come together and had and had a really beautiful conversation last fall, mm-hmm. and and um, I look forward to more of that. And so I, th- I think you're well poised for it. I think that because of white supremacy and supremacy culture at large, um you're you're not socialized into the kind of relationships that queer people or people of color tend to have and so um i look forward to
2: seeing how that shapes and shifts throughout time mhm oh oh gosh i think white supremacy obviously is insidious um yeah. and the way that it is like this um the jailers jail themselves mm-hmm. is, is, is a nasty side effect of that. Um, I think, you know, white supremacy is not only the driving force in climate change and in marginalizing communities, but also, you know, the suicide rate for middle aged white men. It, right. All of this comes down to that, that systemic socialization. You can't participate in white supremacy and have access to your feelings.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So to to get the benefits of the system, you have to lock your feelings away, which over time is going to create horrendous mental health outcomes.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah so let's talk about that kind of uh emotional response, trauma response, kind of the the informed necessity that we have to find ourselves in, especially if we're going to be, you know, deeply engaged in this work of liberation. It's, I think it, it's natural for us to, and when I say us, I'm primarily talking about you and I, Mike, white folk in the work. I think it's easy for us to naturally identify with people of color or people on the margins or on the margins of the margins and, and recognize real clearly and, and immediately the ways in which trauma, immediate or generational, has influenced the way that they're doing the work. I'd love to understand your, kind of where you come at the conversation around trauma and, and, and emotional maturity as it relates to those of us who don't necessarily bring generations of, uh, of, of, of trauma, of, of horrific and, and painful experience into the ways in which we, we, we come at the work.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I think, I think it'd be important to, to make a distinction. Um, English is a frustrating language. We take uh, single words and use them in so many different ways. <laughs> and, it, and it and it declarifies conversations. Mm-hmm. So when uh when we speak of trauma, you know, generational trauma in marginalized communities, um I want to draw a distinction between that when we talk about trauma and neurobiology informed psychology.
1: Oh, okay. When we speak about trauma,
2: we are talking about a specific way experiences get encoded into the brain. Um, and so, uh, I have trauma, uh, for me, a traumatic event. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say a trigger warning for anyone who's been bullied. Feel free to like pause the podcast or hit skip forward a couple of times right now. And I'm going to pause for just a second to give you the opportunity to do that. Uh, but you know, when I was a child, uh i was intensely intensely bullied um and i in one particular instance uh children held me down four children crouched on my body and then fed me dog feces mm. um my brain absolutely encoded that experience as trauma yeah. and that experience to this day is a backseat driver that um jumps in when i try to text someone and says that's not safe that's not safe. Or when I get a tweet that's critical of me, my brain can't differentiate the trauma encoded into my brain. Mm. Can't differentiate between that and being teased on the playground. Mm. And we, what I'm learning is trauma is a nearly universal experience. Uh, when you're a very small child, even if you were affluent and white, uh, you had experiences with your parents or with your peers that made your body feel unsafe. Perhaps even your body became afraid that there was a risk of death because as social primates, humans have an evolutionary knowledge that we can't survive on our own. And so fitting in is an essential part of our survival instinct. Yes. And so those experiences get wired and, and encoded into our brains and then become a backseat driver. And where this gets um, messy is one of the tools the system of white supremacy uses is what I would kind of call trauma indoctrination. We build in traumatic experiences into childhood culturally and then instill in white people a terror of not fitting in, and then we create social webs, mainly economically, that are exclusively white, and so you create this massive neurobiological disincentive to step out of line of the system. Mm -hmm. And if you do, it's okay. We basically built a shock trigger into your brain stem and your emotional brain that will trigger you and terrify you if you try to cross that boundary. Uh, and so okay. I'm, that, that's the distinction here, is uh, kind of generational. It is important when we talk sociologically to acknowledge the differences in trauma. It's also important when we talk psychologically to understand that any person's individual trauma is of utmost significance to their emotional brain. Mm -hmm. And there's no matter how much they read, you can't cognate your way out of that. Right. That's heavy.
1: So good. So good. I mean, good as in content, not good as in. Right. Yeah. I'm a seven. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Rainbows. (laughs) Rainbows.
0: Oh man.
2: I mean, I'm a nine accessing grief has been major work for me. Um, it's, it's hard, it's hard stuff. You know, Mike, I,
0: um, I guess I just want to circle back and I think what I love about you and what I wish that other white men would lean into is telling the truth about their own experiences because we get toxic white masculinity because white men don't want to deal with their trauma.
2: Mm hmm.
0: And, and as a, as a masculine of center person who, you know, <clears throat> runs with a lot of dudes in their life, mm-hmm. um, I don't see a lot of men telling their stories. And I think, I think what I'm, I'm having a lot of feelings right now. And I think one of the feelings that I'm having is a deep sense of gratitude that you have some damn sense to tell your story and that part of getting free and part of dismantling supremacy culture is the very thing that you just did. Um, tell a story that, um, not only shares your vulnerability, but, but, shares the trauma and, and how you've internalized that trauma. Um,
1: And models for other men, the ways in which that can be done in both authentic, but, but, but more importantly, honest ways that are not, that don't minimize your value as, as a, as a masculine human in the world.
2: Right. Right. That's, uh, I actually view that as my, my mission, my work is, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll be real for a second. Um, there, I, my work does not attract as many white men as it once did, I think would be a kind way to say that. Yeah. Uh, but there are still many tens of thousands of white cis het men who encounter my work every month. Yeah. And um, so although my work is increasingly um, as a percentage, uh, women make up a, a, a huge, huge part of my audience, although m- most of those are white women. Yeah. Um, I, my real work is speaking to and modeling behaviors for other white men because that's how people learn. People yeah. learn through modeling. Um, and and what I've tried to do is be careful and intentional about doing the work myself, doing that in relationship and accountability, and then turning around and um, simply modeling it, but modeling it as I do other things. Uh, I actually uh, view it as um, very important that I don't capitalize economically uh, justice work. I, yeah. I think that's very inappropriate. So as I do my work of Science Mike of doing other things, I bake into that meatball a modeling of hopefully a different way of being for men. And what I would tell men is that um, it's better. It's just better. I've done the emotionally isolated white man who spends time socially with other white men making superficial jokes and talking about work. Right. And it's terrible. Yeah. It is an unfulfilling, unsatisfying way to live life. And as my work has changed and as my personal friendships have grown more radically inclusive, my life has just gotten better. Yeah. You know, I never was able to dance and move my body with other white men. But mm. when my friends became queer and became of color, there was a, a social invitation into a personal liberation that felt good to me. Mm. Yeah. There is different patterns of relationship. Yes. There is an openness. There's an honesty. The 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 queer people in my life has so taught me what friendship can mm. really look like. I love that. And mm-hmm. it 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 not only allows you to participate in making the world a better place, that I think we all want it to be fundamentally. Yeah. It also your life just gets better personally. Yeah.
0: Mm. It's amazing when we when we peel away the toxic parts of our life what what is possible. Mhm. And we potentialize liberation.
2: Mhm. And that's mm.
0: the I think that's the beauty of your story. Cuz as we as we say as Ann and I have said in our talks together and on this podcast, white folks need to get free too. And it sounds like you are on that journey. Yes.
1: Ah. This has been such a gift, Mike. Really. It's been it's been both remarkable to have you share your own. Story with us, but it's also been, I, I know I speak for those that are listening that, you know, the ways in which you, um, make possible a a freeness for those of us who find ourselves in, in spaces where we want more for ourselves and we want more for the ways in which we're able to do this work. Um, it's beautiful. And I, I'm so grateful for you.
2: Yes. Could I could I share something in return? Of course. <laughs> I was so encouraged, Dr. Robin, when you were on Ask Science Mike. Mm. And I was encouraged because that largely white audience, the notes and letters and messages I received in response were so grateful and so excited. And people shared things they'd heard for the first time that were meaningful to them. And, um... I just want you to know that encountering your life and your work has been significant and important to me. And I'm seeing the ways in which it is building a new world that mm. creates more liberation. Mm. And I'm just so thankful. I'm just so thankful for our time together today. Yes, but also the larger arc of our relationship. And mm. I so look forward to how that unfolds over
0: time. Mm, that's beautiful. I mean, I I know that um, it takes a diversity of tactics and so much of my work as a white passing Latinx is um, speaking from the standpoint of a person of color but doing that with white folks and it's why Anna and I are in deep relationship of doing this work. I believe I believe in doing this work with white folks. Um and I too am looking forward to the arc of our relationship and I'm so grateful that you came on to our show to tell your story. Hmm.
1: I, I love, I love, love, I love the fact, I just love the fact, the love fest that, that's going on here, y'all. It makes me so happy, it makes me warm and tingly inside. Um, so Mike, do us a favor, um, let folks know both how they can find you, um, how they can follow you. When and where they should look for the, the book, kind of give us all of the, all of the details on um, how our people can, can be in, in communication with you.
2: My name is nearly impossible to spell. So I typically <laughs> recommend people go to asksciencemike.com. That's the home of my podcast. And from there you can get to everything I do, including information about my new book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass that will be in bookstores everywhere. April 28th, 2020.
1: Looking forward to that. I'm so excited to read it. Really great.
2: Oh, and we can send you a copy if you want one early. Just, uh, let me know. Great. Would love to read. I love reading.
1: Well, thanks friends. This has been a great one. This is, uh, this is one for the books for sure. Yeah. Um, For everyone, uh, please, you know, do remember to, to follow Robin and I take a look at the work that we're doing on, uh, the Activist Theology Facebook page and Instagram feed and Twitter feed. We are all over the place and we're headed out to do some really exciting, fun things come March with the podcast. And we're just, we're really excited to be in this work with you until we talk with you next time. I hope everyone, uh, finds a way this week to get your hands dirty figure out what it is that you need to be doing in the world, dig Mm -hmm. deep, find your space and, and get your hands dirty in, in this work of freeing all of us for the sake of liberation.
0: Yes. Let's get free y'all.
1: Let's get free until next week, friends. Thank you all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement?
0: Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robert and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support the podcast? Go
1: to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a tea.
0: The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray, our friends. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.